0: York, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Bear Podcast. And Zach, man, like I'm I'm, I'm excited about this topic today. I, I love this wine region or these wine regions. But before we, we we get into it, we got an ad read from these wine regions. So let's do that. And then, then we can catch up a little bit and then bring on our special guest. Perfect. So the winemakers of Ribera del Duero and Rueda wine regions were locavore, artisanal, and sustainable long before those terms were trendy. These Spanish wines reflect an ancient tradition and a pure sense of place, yet have a timeless appeal that knows no borders. There are many things that make these regions special, one of them being the proliferation of their old vines. In today's episode, you'll hear from Certified Sommelier and Ribera Irueda's trade educator, Chris Paul Doyen. This ad just did the intro for me. Yes. About the viticulture traditions of Spain's top red and white wine regions. Listen in and taste along to discover what makes the priceless heritage of each Ribera Irueda's old vines so special. So a little prematurely, we're not introducing Chris yet, uh, yeah, but now you Chris. guys know it's... Yeah, I mean, Chris, it's not your time yet, buddy, but at least everyone knows that it's coming. Uh, so Zach, before before we do bring on Chris to talk about Rivera E. Rueda, what have you been up to? What have you been drinking? Have you cooked anything cool? Any great experiences? I mean, we're still in COVID, so it's not like you'd be like, I went to this great restaurant, but I'm curious. Um, you know, it's funny. I... I was going to say
1: I the only cooking thing that I did lately that I'm very proud of um, because it was um, it it required not um, it did not require any effort on my part. It required a certain kind of just, uh, you know, uh, acceptance, I suppose, was uh, my my wife has been clamoring and desiring for uh, some sort of cheese-filled pasta, ravioli or tortellini or something. Did you and make I, the
0: TikTok feta pasta? No, 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 no,
1: no, no. <laughs> I, and I said, to my, I said, okay, I'll, you know, I kept saying, no, no, no. I don't want to buy it. I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. And then I finally realized, you know what? I'm not going to make, I like to make fresh pasta, but but ravioli is not the thing that's going to happen. I've done it before. It's, a, it's such a pain in the ass. And so I went to the <laughs> store. They had, the, the store near me had uh, a nice local producer some of the packaged ravioli like fresh ravioli on sale, and I went and bought it, and we made it last night, and it was delicious. And I didn't have to do any work except boil it, and uh, felt a little bad that I kind of you know after all that didn't end up doing it on my own. But um, that was how I celebrated uh, St. Patrick's Day apparently, is with ravioli. So I, I I I gotta say it's never been a holiday that I've I don't mean Irish heritage, so you know it doesn't really resonate in that way. And and um, as someone who worked in the service industry for a very long time, any holiday that you know, sort of encourages overconsumption is not uh, not really one that I tend to get all that excited about. But do, did you do anything for St. Patrick's Day?
0: I had a Guinness. Uh, yeah. I love Guinness, though. And every time I have Guinness, I forget how much I love Guinness. And I had a, a side of a, of a red breast. So red breast uh, Irish whiskey had the, just like a little dram um, and had that with a kale salad I made. But uh, the thing that I was most excited about this week is I uh, over the weekend. I think I've talked about this bar a bunch on this show, but one of my favorite bars prior to the pandemic was the Rockwell place owned by Toby Caccini, the really famous mixologist. He invented the Cosmo, et cetera. And he's had to close the Rockwell place. He only has open right now, the long Island bar. He is reopening the Rockwell place. I'm super excited about that. Um, It's a few blocks from me. And when he first opened it, he had this drink on the menu called the rare citrus margarita. And I was like, what does that mean? Like, like how rare is this is the citrus? Like, is it going about to go extinct? Like, is it, what are we doing? Here? Is it on the end? <laughs> Am I place? making it worse by drinking? Yes. Yeah, but he, I think it's, you know, they use a but that he would combine a bunch of different citrus juices to make the base of the cocktail. I mean, he, I never knew how he made it, but this weekend I got inspired to like try to recreate it. Uh, and so on Saturday night, I you know combined some orange, some fresh orange juice, some fresh lemon juice, some fresh lime juice. The, the, the oranges at least were Cara Cara oranges, so I felt a little bougie about it, right? Like I was bringing in something that felt uh, rare. And then, I feel like it could have gotten more exotic, though, like no pomelo. Dude, I no, should. Have. No Buddha's hand, nothing. It was what was in the fridge. And gotcha. uh, and then, yeah, I made it and he serves it up. So, which I had never, you know, really thought about. Oh, yeah, like margaritas, of course, could be delicious up. Like, yeah. why do we always have to serve them on the rocks? Um, and it was just incredible. I had made one and we had one and then we went uh, and did outdoor dining. Um, nice. Which was a lot of fun. But yeah, so that was my, like, my weekend experience and if you also you know read the site and the the roundups that staff do about the cocktails they've been making recently i may have also used this cocktail as my cocktail for this week (laughs) it's gonna run on the site but (laughs) but you know don't be mad katie i know well it's just such a good story i had to share it twice anyways uh let's let's get into it though so yeah we're not talking about cocktails we're not talking about saint patrick's day we're talking about uh this you know amazing wine region in spain or two amazing wine regions in spain ribera and Ribera del Duero and Rueda, um, which are just wine regions that more people absolutely need to know about. And so to help us get into all things, you know, uh, wine from these two regions, we have Chris Doyen, who is a certified SOM and the Ribera and Rueda trade educator. Chris, man, you you listen to all the gibberish. So first, before we jump into that stuff, like what have you been up to? What have you been drinking? How are you doing and where are you?
2: Howdy, y'all. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, I'm trying to think what I've been drinking. So I was in Austin earlier this week doing a little trade education for Rivera and Rueda. So while I was there, I went to a restaurant called Suerte. I don't know if y'all have heard of it, but it's this really amazing Oaxacan-styled Mexican restaurant that exists kind of in the South Congress area of Austin and some really just fantastic food. I think the prism through which so many people see Mexican food, especially in Texas, is through Tex-Mex, which is definitely not what this is. The food was just, like, so delicious. I think my highlight of the meal, it was uh, some sweet potatoes that had been, like, smoked and then roasted and topped with a lemon aioli and just a fuck ton of different herbs. It was so, so good. Uh, And the wine that we had with it was Beachy Pet Mex, which... I don't know if you're familiar with the beachy wines. They're some of my favorite. BG, yeah. yeah, yeah. I had a chance to go down there during harvest a couple of years ago and see the vineyards. Uh, another place with old vines, um, you know. But to me, at least, the wines that are being made in Valle de Guadalupe are some of the most exciting things happening in not just North or South Central America. I think, like, some of the most exciting wines out there for sure. And that wine, the Petmex, has, like, a touch of RS to it, so it works super well Um, that lower effervescence, you know, goes so well with that kind of food.
0: So it was great. Very cool. Very cool. Um, so we don't have you on to talk about that. We we're going to talk about some, some we're not just going to go all out regions. and talk about yeah. BTR, so, right? Fair. So let's, so, you know, can you give us an overview for people? So I'm throwing out these, these two wine regions names, right? Rueda and Ribera del Duero. Now, some people listen to the podcast, obviously are familiar with both of them. Others may not be. Um, what can you tell us about both regions to give us a quick overview before we jump into the conversation?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, when I think about these places, what immediately comes to my mind is we're, we're in the larger region of Castilla-Leon, and we are in high elevation mountainous areas. So we're in the Meseta Central. Spain is the second most mountainous region in Europe after Switzerland. So we're talking about a area just filled with like a very Mediterranean continental climate. That's what I think of when I think of these places.
1: Just, just so that, again, people can obviously you know, look this up on a map, they can see where these regions are. But just just in terms of locating us, uh, you know, for people who haven't had a chance to travel to these regions, or even maybe to Spain more broadly, kind of orient us where where are we in terms of, uh, you know, the major cities or, or other places that people might be familiar with? Yeah, so we're about two hours north of Madrid. So kind of like north
2: central Spain is kind of the best way to describe where we are.
0: And are these regions right next to each other?
2: They are, they're, they're right next to one another. They're in that larger region of
0: Castilla Leon. And so what, what is, what are they known for? Um, You know, I, I assume, or I mean, I don't assume, I know that one is a white wine region primarily and the other is a red wine region. Um, But what grapes are they known for? Sort of what style of wine are each of them known for? And is there sort of like a, do people who make wine in Rueda also make it in Rivera and vice versa? Like, is it that kind of a, a thing? For sure, yeah. So to kind of get to that first part of it, Ribera del Duero
2: is a region known for red wine. Uh, Tempranillo is the main grape of the region, and in Rueda, the main grape of the region is Verdejo. Verdejo is like a really fresh, bright, um, makes very crisp wine. Um, and of course, in Roberto del Duero, most people think of those like big red wines that come from the area. so they're they're very much sister regions in that sense. And to get to the second half of what you were talking about, absolutely, you find a lot of Roberto Duero producers making Verdejo, making that fresh white wine um so so there's definitely a complementary element to the two.
1: You know, kind of curious too, when we talk about Tempranillo and we talk about um, Verdejo, and and I think specifically in the context of some of the wines that Adam and I tried and and that, you know, are kind of uh, of of particular note here, we are talking about a long history of viticulture, as is true for all, you know, kind of all of Spain in a lot of ways, but, you know, also this particular facet of uh, each of these regions, which is a lot of older vine material. Can you talk a little, Chris, about kind of both what is actually there in terms of old vines. And then maybe we can talk a little about kind of how that matters in the resulting wine. Well, I think to talk about old vines in this area, you know, it goes back
2: over a thousand years, but this area was pretty much the capital of Spain for a very long time. Ferdinand and Isabella got married in the region of Valladolid in 1469, right? So this is kind of the birthplace of modern Spain in a lot of ways. And because of that, a lot of vines were planted in this area after the Reconquista, and it was flourishing. It did really, really well. Uh, Again, a lot of Tempranillo, uh, that is the indigenous grape of the Iberian Peninsula. Verdejo, also indigenous to this area. So Phylloxera comes through, devastates the vineyards. However, a lot of these small villages with very sandy soils, they were able to survive. Those vines were able to thrive. And now what we're noticing is there's been this revitalization with people discovering these very old vineyards that have been around and we're seeing really complex wines being made out of these old vines.
0: Interesting. So, okay, let's take it, let's take it, let's, let's jump back and say, okay, it's a, it's a region, one region makes white wine, one region makes red wine, the white wine region makes it based on Verdejo, the red wine region's making it mostly based on Tempranillo, Cool. Why should people care? So, what is it that people? What is it about these wines that makes them special? And wines that people should seek out, especially if you've never heard of this region before, or you're only, you know, vaguely aware of it. And maybe I'll give you an, a clear example. Like maybe all you know about Tempranillo is that it comes from another region of Spain that it also happens to be very well known to start with the letter R, right? So. What would make you? It's like Voldemort, he who must not be named, right? Exactly. What doing, right? Yeah. So, what would you think? I just like to keep it a little mysterious. So, <laughs> what would you? What would you tell someone about why? You know, I'm I'm a customer. I'm at the restaurant. You're my som. Why should I be drinking Rueda or or Ribera? Yeah,
2: I think there's a lot of different ways to go about that. But at the end of the day, right? You want to drink something that that feels authentic, right? To me, what's so special, right, is that within Spain, at least, Verdejo is the most widely consumed white wine out there. And these are regions that have a long viticultural heritage, right? They've been making wine in del Duero for centuries and centuries, as long, if not longer than in the other R region, right? To me, at least, as a consumer, as well as as a buyer, I'm looking for something new and different that still has that authenticity and has that long tradition of winemaking. I find that to be the case in both of these regions. I mean, these are vines that were put in the ground long before it was trendy to make organic wine or low intervention wine. And for me, at least as a buyer, these wines offer incredible value as well. Um, I know we're going to talk about that in a little bit, but for me, at least, like, I don't know, these are some of the best value wines out there, like dollars for donuts. I think these like over deliver.
1: Okay. So let's, let's talk a little bit, you know, you mentioned a little the taste profile of Verdejo, but I think again, for a lot of people listening, they may not be very familiar they may never have tried verdejo or at least not be aware of it tempranillo obviously has a little bit more of a profile but even then let's talk a little bit about maybe whether it's the specific wines that that adam and i had or or these wines more generally like what can someone expect maybe what are some reference points and and like what you know what are these wines you know what 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 is what should someone expect when they drink them
2: So let's say you have a bottle of rueda, right? Chances are what's inside of that bottle is verdejo and chances are that fruit went through fermentation in stainless steel. A lot of these producers want to preserve that fresh, bright acidity. And the best way to do that is making it in a more reductive environment. So Oftentimes, you end up with a really zippy, bright, fresh wine. A lot of producers will have some lees incorporation there, ending up with something that's a little more savory or complex. I think this is a good lateral move for someone if you're used to drinking maybe Pinot Grigio. Some of those like brighter, crisper examples could be a good lateral move from Sauvignon Blanc. For that guest that maybe wants something a little geekier, I think that there's like a Gadeo kind of like element going on here as well. Um. So something just like crisp, bright, fresh, with that lazy complexity for sure.
1: Cool. And and so you know you mentioned before that this is one of the this is the most widely consumed white variety in Spain. Are is is most of what's being consumed in Spain from Rueda?
2: Yeah. Yeah. For the most part, that that's pretty much what you're seeing. There is Verdejo grown in a couple other areas as well,
0: but this is the dominant grape and dominant region for it. Gotcha. And how is, how is the wine normally consumed? Like what is it consumed with? Uh, And is it like, is there a specific season that it's consumed or is it all year long? People are just like, it's already a season 51
2: weeks out of the year, baby. Like all the time. Unless you're like celebrating with sparkling wine, you know, around New Year's or something like that. No, it's cool. it's really the sort of thing where you just ask for uh, like white wine, and chances are, what's being served to you is Rueda Verdejo. In terms of like what to eat with it, you know, I can think about here in Houston at least, right? Like here, what we have a lot of is some amazing Vietnamese cuisine. And to me, all of those like really fresh vegetable elements that are used, things that are seasoned with lemons or with Thai basil, like those are things that work incredibly well with those like very zippy, citrusy examples. The more savory wines out there, the ones that have like extended lees aging or some batonage, those are the ones that go with something a little heavier, maybe something with like cream or cheese. In Spain, at least, you know, you eat a lot of like roasted vegetables. I'm thinking of like carrots and potatoes goat cheese is a very common thing sheep's milk cheese those are those are things that work really well with these wines
0: the reason i was asked is because like my last time in spain i didn't see a lot of vegetables so i was just <laughs> kind of wondering like you know is, yeah potatoes are, are kind
2: of like a vegetable in spain it's kind of the base of the love food pyramid <laughs> over there
0: t- totally totally um so you know obviously ribera is a region that um some people may may be more aware of uh uh, even though, you know, I think it's probably surprising for people to hear that Rueda is the wine that's consumed much more. Um, Ribera, I think on the American market is a wine that consumers may have been told, you know, produces excellent wine. But I think the other bias they may have is that that's, it's a really expensive region um, and really expensive because there's, you know, a few producers that are just insanely famous um, and sell wines at, Exorbitantly high prices. Um, Is Ribera expensive?
2: Nine times out of 10, it is not. I think it's great that the region does have this recognition with quality because you do have these like cult producers that are making, you know, 99, 110 point wines, right? You know, but at the end of the day, right, that represents such a small percentage of the wine that's being made in the area. You've got over 50,000. Acres under vine in Roberto del Duero, but you only have like I'd say 14 producers that are making more than 75,000 cases a year. Uh, you have wow. a lot of very small growers that are making wine. You have a lot of very small producers. I mean, today you guys tasted a uh, Goyo Garcia, right? That was one of the yeah. wines that you tried. Great example of someone who's working with very old vines and making a small production of wine. He's a great example. Of that smaller producer. There's other examples out there. I mean, there's a lot of Crianzas or Cosecha, kind of the like the fruit that's maybe not aged in oak for a super long period of time that is really just fresh, easy to drink. And those wines are coming in under like 30 bucks a bottle. There are even examples out there that are under 20 bucks a bottle. Right. I think I looked at the,
0: I think I looked the Goya up and it was around 20 bucks or something.
2: Yeah. I mean, these are like great bistro wines, reds that you can just crack open that don't need to be decanted over the course of hours, you know. They're super easy. I don't know if they're going to get like Instagrammed by NBA players or if they're going right. to be at like <laughs> a like a steakhouse for hundreds of thousands of dollars or whatever. But like, they're they're great wines. They're 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 super delicious, easy drinking, where you don't have to think twice about opening
1: it. But I will say also as a as someone with lots of floor experience myself, it's the the other style of Ribera del Duero that's slightly more, um, you know, whether it's from uh, a little bit. Uh, more concentrated maceration and and winemaking style or what also has been I've always been uh, really pleased at how broad an appeal that wine has I mean it is it would be a lie to say that there aren't a lot of wine drinkers out there who want full-bodied red wines they are ubiquitous and it was really fun for me to be able to offer people wines um particular from Roberto Duero maybe not at that uh yeah you know um Eye, eye-gouging price point, but, but you know, not inexpensive wines, but wines that are, I think, really, really deliver for a person whose point of reference is not even necessarily other Tempranillo-based wines, but, you know, Bordeaux's, uh, you know, Cabernet and Merlot-based wines from California, where you get a lot of that kind of, you know, deeper fruit flavor, kind of blacker fruit than you might see in Tempranillo from other regions, Uh, a little bit more concentration, but also the kind of still that freshness that comes from, you know, I think uh, I I have not been to uh, this part of Spain, but I, you know, I hear it's pretty extreme climactically, both uh, hot and cold. And uh, and just in general, like wines that are really uh, satisfying to a person whose palate, you know, is oriented more towards a a more full-bodied wine.
2: No, totally, and part of the reason you're getting that is because there's been some clonal variation there. The the Tempranillo grape itself has kind of adjusted to that really harsh climate in Ribera del Duero. You're in this high elevation, so the grapes are getting hit with this UV light, the berries are getting jostled around on the vine, so the skins over time have developed to become a little bit thicker. They actually call it Tinto Fino or Tinto del País, and as a result, the wines I tend to be tend to be more black-fruited. Um, a little more concentrated than what you find in other parts of Spain. There is that just style of making those bigger, more robust wines that can go up against a Bordeaux, Napa Cab, something along those lines.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it was interesting. Um, you know, I I heard uh, Alex Le Pratt speak recently about uh, Ribera too, and he was saying he'll take Riberas to uh, blind tasting like dinners or whatever. And, and a bunch of people will confuse them for old Bordeaux, which I think is cool and sort of, you know for so, if you're a listener and those are the kinds of wines you like to know that a lot of those wines can exhibit those same qualities is 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 super dope so what's what's happening right now in the regions like what should people be aware of um you know and and be excited about yeah, I think. So often,
2: whether you're like studying for sommelier exams, you're just starting to learn about wine. The first thing that you immediately think of when you think of these places is like, well, what's the aging classification, right? And it's easy to get caught up in like Crianza, Reserva, Gran Reserva, stuff like that when we're talking about Tempranillo from Spain. And that program of aging certainly exists in del Duero, but we're slowly seeing a movement away from that and maybe designating village or designating single vineyard sites where we're moving away from the idea of process and moving more towards how can we best express this grape from this particular site. So that, to me, I think is something to look forward to where you don't have to flip the bottle around or look on the label, try and find whether it says Reserva or Gran Reserva and instead just see maybe the village that's represented or the sub region within del Duero, because the region itself, it's not a monolith. Like as you go from west to east, you go up in elevation, you get a change in soil. And I think that's what we're starting to see is less like a blend of the overall region and more like village specific sites.
1: Cool. And I wanted to get a, a, a mention of this here or get your opinion on this too, Chris, because we talked about some great options that may a little outside the box pairing options for Rueda. What about for del Duero? Um, what are some things that you you've had success with either, you know, just eating and drinking yourself or with guests and, and that people should be aware of, um, especially kind of obviously there's some probably great examples of classic Spanish cuisine, but also maybe outside of that paradigm.
2: Yeah, totally. Well, I think like within Spain, right? Like the Asador concept, right? Like grilled meat. And that's something we have a whole lot of here in the States too, right? So for me, when I think of the more concentrated, more dense Roberto Duero out there, certainly going for like that slab in a cab mentality, getting a big piece of grilled meat goes incredibly well with it, whether it's steaks, a more aged example of Roberto Duero, maybe a dry aged red meat. Um, and then for those lighter representations, I think you can also go with something akin to like barbecue. We certainly have a fair bit of that here in Texas, but when I, I think bar- of like cold yeah. pork, you know, black
0: pepper, like on brisket, like that flavor profile works really, really well as well. Awesome. Well, Chris, this has been really interesting to learn more about these two regions. Um, you know, I think they're definitely wines that people should seek out and try more, um, you know, and I feel like you can find them almost everywhere, but, you know, I know that some people might say, oh, you know, I live in, you know, a, a smaller town or, you know, I'm not in a, in a major, major city, like you're in Houston, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So they may not have as, as much, as, as many sort of choices. Are there like, any specific producers people should be on the lookout for, who you think are national, if they, if they want to jump into this? Like, how do they jump in, or, or where should they go uh, to try to try some some delicious uh, Ribera and Rueda wines?
2: Yeah, so in the case of Rueda, a couple producers that I think are pretty widely available. Um, Martin Sancho is a fantastic producer. The gentleman behind that winery, Angel Rodriguez, was actually like knighted essentially he was awarded by king juan carlos for saving the grape from extinction back in the 70s so i mean shout out to angel for doing what he's doing out there that's a wine that's widely represented across the u.s bodega shaya they make some really delicious verdejo they actually have an old vine bottling of verdejo so shaya is s-h-a-y-a that one's fantastic marquez de caceres is another good example um bodegas naya um, that one also specializes in old vine Verdejo. So those are probably the highlights from Rueda within del Duero. The ones, the, the winery that like immediately comes to mind is Tinto Pesquera. Um, Tinto okay. Pesquera is, you know, a fantastic winery, kind of one of the iconic wineries of Spain, more in a rustic style, which I think is really nice. That's one that comes to mind. Another producer that you find pretty available out there is, um... I think Dominio de Aguila is a really fun one. Jorge and Isabel Monzon, the people that make those wines are delicious. They make a Clarete as well, which is super cool. Not something you see as much of in the market, but uh, the red wine at least is top-notch.
1: Awesome. And then I have one last question, Adam. I'm sorry, I got to jump no, go. in here. Because I'm in this state now where I am like, just, I've been doing this for the last year, but, you know, fantasizing about traveling. And for those of us who are maybe starting to, Consider turning those fantasies into reality as the year unfolds. You know, it doesn't have to be a a long discourse about traveling to Rivera del Duero and uh, Rueda. But what is the experience like, And, and can you give any tips, Chris?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, again. You've probably, you're going to fly into Madrid. You're going to get to Barajas Airport. What I'd probably do is just like rent a car and drive because it is a beautiful drive as you go north from Madrid. You go through the Sierra de Gredos on your way. So you're going through this beautiful mountainous area. When you get there, the town of Segovia is like the home to like suckling pigs. So you're going to eat incredibly well there. The castle in Segovia, the Alcazar, is what they say uh, Walt Disney based his Cinderella castle on. So you can check out some amazing castles in the area. There are eight UNESCO World Heritage Sites throughout Castilla León. So whether you go to Salamanca, um, oldest university in Spain, you go to Segovia to check out the castle, work your way to Valladolid and Burgos. These are regions that, you know, you're learning the history of Spain as you go through these spots. There are amazing museums, um, certainly great hiking to be had. So no shortage of fun things to do and wineries to check out.
0: Cool. Well, Chris, th- thanks so much for coming on, man. We really appreciate you uh, sharing all this amazing information about these two incredible wine regions. Yeah, I, I, we encourage people to go check them out.
1: Yeah, and we'll have some notes in the uh, we'll have some notes in the show here about uh, some some ways to get your hands on some of these wines that uh, that should be good access points for most everyone who listens.
2: Cool, guys. Thank you
0: so much for having us on. Of course. And Zach, as always, i will see you next week, man. Sounds, Sounds great. I would love to give a special shout out to my Vine Pair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, Vine Pair Tasting Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the Vine Pair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making the show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again. Today's episode of the Vine Pair Podcast was brought to you by Rivera Irueda. If you're looking for where you can get your hands on some Robert Irueda wines, check out Mr. D's an online shop that will ship your wines nationally. And better yet, if you purchase two or more bottles of Ribera e Rueda, then you'll get 15% off. Just use the discount code RR2021. And be sure to check out RiberaRuedaWine.com for some great wine 101 and recipe pairings. Cheers, guys.